You're listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. Uh, by the time this podcast is released, IATP will have launched our report, Emissions Impossible, talking about the greenhouse gas emissions coming from the largest meat and dairy corporations. Uh, to talk a bit more about the science behind uh, the greenhouse gas emissions from livestock, I'm joined by a doctoral researcher at UC Berkeley, Paige Stanley. Uh, Paige was one of the participants at a meeting IATP convened in June at the Picantico Retreat Center in New York that brought together um, activists, researchers, uh, academics, and others to discuss uh, the greenhouse gas emissions of livestock and uh, potential solutions. So, um, Paige, you gave a presentation at the meeting. Um, why don't you, you know, briefly reintroduce uh, the focus of your work and, and talk a bit about what that presentation entailed? Yeah, absolutely. And so happy to be on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, the presentation I gave at the IATP meeting was really surrounding the state of the science as far as livestock and greenhouse gas emissions and climate change go. Um, you know, as we're all aware, beef has been a very hot topic in the past, you know, five to 10 years as far as its relative impact on climate change. You know, they, beef cattle have a very high carbon footprint and potentially can be degrading to the environment in a lot of ways. But really, you know, we've seen some contrasting reports come out about, you know, different types of beef production and how um, different management practices contribute to greenhouse gas emissions. So I was just kind of giving an overview of the science and then talking about, you know, where the gaps are and how we can move forward. Yeah, so let's let's uh, get into that a bit. Um, I, you know, as a, a relative newcomer to this field of research, uh, still have in my brain the vision of a cow farting in a field, um, <laughs> to be very blunt. Um, can you explain to me what's kind of the big picture of, of beef as emitters of greenhouse gases? The, the kind of best estimate that we have is that beef cattle contribute about 14.5% of total green, anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions, which is fairly significant. But, you know, kind of the most talked about thing, like you mentioned, is cows farting or actually cows burping, and that's the enteric methane part of the footprint. Um, and because beef cattle emit so much more than the other animal sectors, um, it's been a really hot topic. So, you know, there's kind of this discussion on different ways of producing beef cattle and then what's sustainable and what's not. And really, it's the question, that question of what's sustainable and what's not is really hard to answer because it depends on so many things. You know, how you model the emissions, is it based on real data? Is it coming from one region or is it a global estimate? Um, and are we really changing our assumptions of these, of these emissions based on different types of um, management practices? And all of those things kind of play together um, to, to make us realize that there's a lot of uncertainty embedded within these numbers. And if I understand your research correctly, what you looked at was kind of the holistic land management versus feedlot finishing. And what you found is that holistic management practices or basically rotational grazing has the ability to sequester carbon, but that feedlots produce less kind of intense emissions. Is that more or less correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, since, since we've been talking about beef and, and climate change over the past 10 years, a lot of the papers coming out have shown that um, as far as efficiency goes, a feedlot model or, you know, 
um, feeding cattle grain in the finishing phase, you get more beef out of it and you produce less emissions on, on a productivity basis. Meaning that when you, um, when you put emissions on a per kilogram of weight basis, it spreads out the emissions more and makes it look like you have overall less emissions. Um, but what's been happening in reality is that, you know, actual production hasn't decreased. In fact, it's increased. So on a broader scope, that actually means more emissions, just less emissions per unit of product. So what my paper was looking at was, you know, if we were to increase our scope on um, a life cycle analysis, which is the type of study we use to account for all these greenhouse gas emissions, and if we include carbon sequestration, which has kind of been alluded to um, as far as ro rotational grazing goes, and if we account for that as a, as a way to kind of essentially take carbon out of the air, what does that emissions profile look like compared to what is the status quo, which is feedlot finishing? Right. And so what did you find? So when we, you know, we, we used a very standard methodology of life cycle analysis. And what we found was that um, on the grazing side, um, up at Lake City um, Ag Bio Research Center, where we were doing this rotational grazing system, we were sequestering about 3.6 tons of carbon per hectare per year, which was significantly higher than, you know, the kind of the average body of literature had shown. Um, and what that meant was that, you know, before we had accounted for any carbon sequestration, um, the grazing side was actually emitting, emitting more greenhouse gases than the feedlot side. Um, but when we took that carbon sequestration into account, it actually reduced the entire emissions profile and then some. So we were actually sequestering more emissions than the cattle were emitting. So the, basically the idea is, it, it, I mean, is carbon sink an appropriate term, like a potential carbon yeah. sink for, yeah. Um, and, and so what I'm wondering is like how replicable, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much this has been replicated, but you had mentioned, you know, uh, alluded to things being, you know, fairly geographically specific for in terms of livestock production. Um, is this something that could be repli replicated elsewhere? Absolutely. There's um, about four or five studies now that show really comparable rates of carbon sequestration, somewhere between the range of, you know, two and nine tons of carbon per hectare per year. Um, and all of that literature has come out within the past five or six years, when before that we were kind of assuming that using rotational grazing was only going to give us a very small uh, level of carbon sequestration of about 0.5 tons per hectare per year. So, um, and these studies that I just mentioned there across several uh, geographic regions, mine was in the upper Midwest, there's some coming out of the more um, arid Southwest, some in the Southeast, um, specifically, I think Georgia, Colorado, Texas areas. Um, and so we know that there's something to this management practice of rotating cattle. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, every place can achieve that high level of, of carbon sequestration. Definitely in more arid regions like California, it would be very challenging um, and maybe even impossible to achieve, to achieve that rate. But we know that we're seeing higher levels of carbon sequestration by using this management practice than what we had previously assumed. And, you know, assuming a best case scenario, um, with carbon sequestration. Um, there's still, you know, a finite amount of grazable land in mm -hmm. the world. Um, 
how does this, uh, how does the amount of, of carbon being sequestered um, kind of compare against uh, the rate of consumption of beef right now? And is there anything that would approach sustainability at current consumption levels? Right. You, the consumption question is definitely another layer of, of complexity to this. Um, and so, you know, right now, the way that we are producing and consuming beef in very high consuming countries, especially the United States and maybe even places like Brazil, um, those consumption patterns just aren't sustainable, really, no matter how... Um, no matter how you lay out the problem, because if even we were to, to switch into a grazing model where all beef being produced was you know, coming from systems that, that sequestered carbon, we wouldn't be able to keep up with the production capacity that's being produced out of feedlots right now. So inherently that means some level of consumption reduction. Um, and how much that means, you know, we're, we're a little unsure. There are some studies showing you know, if we were to produce cattle on pasture only using standard grazing practices that, you know, we could produce about half of all beef consumption in, in high consuming countries. Um, but we know that using rotational grazing practices does increase the amount of beef we can produce, like from just grazing alone. Mm -hmm. So we know, you know, we know that inherently that that means some level of, of consumption reduction, but um, is that drastic? We're not sure. Obviously, if we see a reduction in consumption, that means a reduction in profits for some of the largest corporations in the world. And a lot of the corporations, their line on climate change has been, we're reducing our emissions intensity. And by that, they mean we're building more feedlots, you know, or moving to a feedlot system. So they, they're very much invested in the science behind that, because not only does it reduce their emission intensity, it just allows them to produce a lot more uh, livestock, you know, finished livestock. So they've really been backing the science that's supported the emissions intensity argument. Can you talk a bit about how research is now shifting? Exactly what you said, and like I mentioned earlier, a lot of the papers that have come that have come out on, you know, how how to reduce emissions from beef production essentially say that increasing efficiency or increasing the amount of um, meat per animal and or reducing the emissions per pound or kilogram of meat, um, that that's the way forward because that kind of gets at the bottom line of many of these, of many of these companies. Essentially it's, it can be seen as a way out. You know um, we don't have to, we don't have to reduce the, the beef we're producing, and we can still, according to science, reduce our emissions. Um, but what what we're kind of seeing now that we've we've spent you know the past 10, 20 years building these life cycle analyses is that you know there are some problems with that type of scientific thinking, and a lot of it has to do with the way we build these models and the types of assumptions we use because it it kind of inherently biases certain types of production towards looking like they have a smaller greenhouse gas footprint. And I can give a few examples. Yeah, would you please? Absolutely. So um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, kind of lays out the, the existing framework on how to go about uh, modeling the emissions from cattle. And, and one, 
you know, one area of modeling is, is to estimate the enteric methane being produced from beef cattle, which is a really significant portion of overall emissions and a very hot topic. And, you know, in their equations, they assume that about 6% of all um, digestible energy for grass-fed cattle is converted to methane, whereas for grain-fed cattle, they estimate about 3.5 is converted to methane. So that's you know, a little less than half of um, the methane being produced from grain fed. And that's, you know, universally assuming the same uh, management for all grass fed. And there's been a couple studies showing, including mine, that if you use actual collected data for enteric methane, instead of modeling it using that IPCC equation, that real time methane production, um, with with rotational grazing can be significantly lower. Um, I think my my paper was showing that um, using that IPCC equation overestimated enteric methane by about 35%, which was really significant. Even the functional unit itself, or you know, kind of this efficiency unit that we use to portray the findings of an LCA. So usually we say, you know, this type of beef cattle emits 10 kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalents per kilogram of carcass weight. And that's where the efficiency argument comes in, right? Because technically you can um, increase the amount of pounds and that drags out the emissions over a bigger denominator. Um, And so, you know, more extensive systems like even rotational grazing, you have animals that are producing less meat. And so therefore the emissions are concentrated over a smaller denominator. And so even just using that type of system can, can create some, some issues. So you had mentioned that you had talked about where some of the gaps in the science are right now. Um, Mm -hmm. And maybe talk about where the largest couple of gaps are in the science and what we might be looking for in the future. So, you know, back to the soil carbon sequestration, I mentioned that there are, you know, a handful of studies showing, you know, the, the, the type of high carbon sequestration rate that, that we showed in my paper. Um, and part of the reason why, you know, maybe there hasn't been a lot of that type of work done showing that type of outcome, you know, that for a few reasons. So first, it takes a very long time to gather that kind of data, especially when it comes to soil carbon. You know, to to measure change in soil carbon, you need uh, a year of baseline data, and then you need to keep measuring that soil carbon over time. And so to do that, you know, you need a good five years. And so to even approach a, a project that is going to take that long and to have the amount of funding to do that, um, is, is significant. And, you know, there have been some studies that have been used to back up this claim that, you know, well, we actually aren't getting any soil carbon uh, change with um, using rotational grazing, but the type of data that is showing that is actually modeled data. So it's not data being taken, for example, from a farm where they're actually implementing rotational grazing. Rather, it's coming from potentially um, data where they only collected one year of soil carbon stock data and then didn't collect it over time. And instead they were using um, regression models to project what that soil carbon change might look like without actually relying on real time 
uh, on-farm collected data. So this is, it's, I mean, it's basically just a case of the, the practice isn't actually matching the theory. And so now we need to go back and find a new theory that matches what's actually happening in reality. Absolutely. And we need to be collecting data along the way because, you know, we, we can talk all about carbon sequestration and rotational grazing, but until we have solid evidence that that's the case, um, you know, it'll be very hard to issue other research that's showing the alternative outcome. Your research focused on feedlot finishing versus, you know, holistic management practices and specifically rotational grazing. Can you just talk about uh, how you define rotational grazing and the associated management practices? Absolutely. So um, rotational grazing is not at all a new concept, especially to ranchers that have been using it forever. Um, but the, the type of rotational grazing um, that I focused on in my paper was a specific kind called adaptive multi-paddock grazing. Um, and this is, you know, keen to holistic management. Um, and what we mean by that and, you know, why, we, why it's considered different than regular rotational grazing um, is that, you know, rather than just having cattle in a paddock for a certain number of days and rotating them on a schedule, um, which is kind of generally rotational grazing. Adaptive multi-paddock grazing um, is built on this concept of, well, exactly what it sounds like, adaptive rotational grazing. And what that means is that um, cattle are rotated according to forage availability, forage quality, weather. You know, a rancher really needs to take into account all of these things in order to ensure that when cattle are being rotated, they have the best forage available and they can maximize all of the outcomes. So, you know, forage utilization or how much cattle are eating. Um, and the concept behind that is that if you kind of stock cattle to a high density or kind of um, make them um, graze more uniformly, which is trying to um, mimic kind of herds of, of bison, right, um, moving across the Great Plains, and they're herding animals. So they're kind of meant to group together to um, prevent a lot of predator attacks. And one of the benefits of that is that they, they graze everything um, down to a more uniform level, and that, that um, can really help as far as carbon sequestration goes because it prevents for example, annuals from overcoming perennials. Um, and so, you know, farmers and ranchers take all of these things into account and they, they rotate according to that rather than according to a schedule. And that type of management is what we think is really contributing to um, soil carbon sequestration and higher productivity levels and a lot of the ecosystem services that, that are also associated with it. Um. It, it's interesting to hear you describe it, um, especially saying, you know, this is something ranchers have been doing for a long time, because essentially it, it seems like you're advocating for an agroecological approach to livestock management. Is that basically right? <laughs> That's exactly it. Um, but, you know, farmers and ranchers might look at us like we're crazy, right? Because this is something that at least a subset of them have known for a long time to be beneficial um, and kind of you know, what we've advocated for as far as science goes continues to change. And so it can be a little confusing, you know, in the 50s, we started advocating for, you know, grain finishing, and then kind of the, the grazing side went to more continuous grazing. 
Um, but now what we're really saying is there might have been something to this type of adaptive management that some farmers have been using all along. And then, uh, you know, just to close the podcast, what is next for you in terms of how you're going to use your research to move forward? Yeah, so I think, you know, toward the end of, of the research I was doing um, when I was publishing that paper, I, I kind of came to realize that, you know, as much as we need more data and more people working on this in order to really, um, in order to really move us forward as far as deciding what's sustainable and what's not, um, there's, there's people that I, that I think are doing incredible work on soil carbon and rotational grazing. Um, but what's, what's really missing is kind of this value piece on what is sustainable and what's not. Because in the end, um, you can have all of the science in the world, but unless you know, somebody is really using it to make a difference, things can stay stagnant for a very long time. And so whether that's you know, um, looking to farmers to utilize the types of practices that we would deem sustainable, or even looking to policy to incentivize those types of practices, I think a lot of work needs to be done on, on that front because right now we're, we're essentially subsidizing a set of, a set of um, practices and an industry that um, we know is, is externalizing a lot, of, a lot of negative things, both to the environment, to public health, um, et cetera. So I think um, trying to take the science and make something happen with it on a policy level is, is where I'm headed now. Well, that's, that's great to hear. And I think that's where we're headed as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, and hopefully we can get something done in that. Um, well, Paige Stanley, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much. You've been listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. For more on what you've heard today, including to read IATP's new paper, Emissions Impossible, you can visit our website at www.iatp.org. This podcast is available for download on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. I want to thank Andrew Arisso for editing the podcast today, and thanks for listening.